Well, good morning and welcome again to good morning, Ricky. How you doing? Welcome again to Grace Bible Church. It's, uh, it's wonderful to be here to get together today, uh, every Lord's Day, right? It's wonderful to be with the saints anytime we can gather with the saints. Well, we live in interesting days, do we not? Many of us live, as I said earlier, in the relative peace of our homes while watching the tragedy of the chaos unfold around us. As I as I follow social media, unfortunately, I can't see, seem to untether myself from social media. I'm reminded of Dickens, Charles Dickens, in The Tale of Two Cities. He says, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times, it was the age of wisdom, it was the age of foolishness, it was the epoch of belief, it was the epoch of incredulity, it was the season of light. It was the season of darkness. It was the spring of hope. It was the winter of despair. We had everything before us. We had nothing before us. Those profound words, in my mind at least, capture the emptiness of hope and the depth of despair in this world. Yet as Christians, we are given true hope. True hope in a Lord and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. This hope is not found on social media. It's not found in government protection. And I brought it up in the prayer. It's not even found in the field of medicine, as thankful as I am for that profession. Our hope is found in the pages of a book. A book that we believe contains the very words of God. It is on this book that we turn our attention this morning. Let me pray for us, and then we're going to find our way to 2 Peter chapter 1 this morning. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you this morning again that we could gather together as we turn our attention to the preaching of the Word of God. May the pulpit at Grace Bible Church, no matter who stands here, be central to all that we do. In Christ's name, amen. Let's read from First Peter chapter, or Second Peter, that is, chapter 1, verse, verses 16 through 21. The Apostle Peter writes, For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. For when He received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to Him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with Him on the holy mountain. So we have the prophetic word made more sure, to which you would do well to pay attention, as to a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. But know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, 
but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Speaking of profound words, this, the following story appeared in the Babylon Bee last week. The place is Israel. It says, working at an archaeological dig in the Valley of Elah, Bible experts have come up with an interesting theory concerning the death of Goliath, the hulking giant of the Philistines who fought David in a one-on-one, in a one-on-one combat. Though he did have severe head trauma and some neck problems, his death is now being counted as a COVID-19 death. While, while we didn't test him per se, he exhibited a lot of symptoms of COVID-19, said one Bible scholar, as he carefully worked to unearth some ancient face masks from Bible times. The wooziness, the falling down, the headache, it's all pretty indicative of the novel coronavirus. He also stated that the virus ran rampant among the Philistines because they did not social distance. While Israel was relatively safe because King Saul declared a lockdown. One researcher suggested that Goliath did not die of coronavirus, but simply OD'd having been stoned. But then the other researchers realized he was telling a dad joke and told him to shut up and keep digging. At publishing time, scholars had proposed that everyone who died in the flood, Israelite conquest of Canaan, and the flattening of Sodom and Gomorrah also died of COVID-19. Of course... This is satire, fresh from the Babylon Bee, but I believe this piece brilliantly brings together a very modern concern, COVID-19, right? With a very old struggle, the willingness to twist the Word of God to fit the current narrative. If you have ever watched the History Channel, you'll see what they do. They twist the Word of God, they twist the words of God to fit what they, how they want or what they think should be the current, current narrative. Just this week, Don Lemon of CNN was discussing the Founding Fathers with uh, Chris Cuomo when he made the following statement. He said this, here's the thing. Jesus Christ, if that's who you believe in, Jesus Christ admittedly was not perfect when he was here on this earth. As Cuomo nodded approvingly, Lemon continued, So why are we deifying the founders of this country, many of whom owned slaves? End quote. Now clearly Mr. Lemon either hasn't read the Scripture, because the Scriptures clearly teach the perfections of Christ, or he's twisting the Scriptures for his own gain. I'm not sure, it's hard to say, but most people in our country would have no way to refute what he said because they're just as ignorant concerning the Word of God. Unfortunately, I'm not sure that many who call themselves Christians could actually refute this lie from the Word of God. Malcolm Gladwell, the popular author, has written a book called David and Goliath. The subtitle is Underdogs, Misfits, and the Art of Battling Giants. In his book, he casts David as a severe underdog. Only in the eyes of every, only in the eyes of everyone watching. In reality, though, he cast him as superior. Now, I agree with Gladwell that David was superior to Goliath. 
Gladwell believes, though, that David was physically superior and had better weapons than Goliath. He says that Goliath was expecting one kind of fight while David came at him with a, in a completely unexpected way. According to Gladwell, when David reached into his shepherd's bag for a stone, no one, was watching from the, no one watching from the ridges would have considered David's victory improbable. You see, David was a slinger. Slingers beat infantry hands down, according to Gladwell. One historian said, Goliath had as much a chance against David as any Bronze Age warrior with a sword would have had against an opponent armed with a forty-five automatic pistol. End quote. He goes on to say that David or that Goliath may have had even had physical issues such as poor eyesight, which contributed to David's victory. Gladwell's point that he's making in the book is that sometimes we believe that we see power exhibited in size and strength, which causes us to overlook the actual weaknesses. Now, in some ways, I agree with him on that point. History's full of examples of people missing the weaknesses when they believe, when they see the strength. Yet Scripture captures an even greater reality when it comes to David. David's great faith and God's great faithfulness. 1 Samuel 17, 37 captures this when it says, And David said, The Lord delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear, and he will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. You see, Gladwell missed that emphasis. He missed that emphasis and the truth of the Word of God. Yahweh delivered David and the Israelites. Now, here's what's interesting. A careful reading of God's Word leads us to 1 Samuel 13, where we find out that there were no blacksmiths in Israel. Therefore, there was neither sword nor spear in the hands of Israel's soldiers, or at least there was a shortage of those. Goliath represented the Philistines with, a, with superior weaponry, while David represented God's people with nothing but a few stones. But we also find something else in 1 Samuel 13. It's in the midst of Saul's first failure as king. But it says that God is going to raise up a man after God's own heart. Well, guess who that man is? It's David. It's David. This is the ultimate reason that David stood up and fought Goliath. And it's the ultimate reason why he won the battle with Goliath is because he was a man after God's own heart. David trusted and obeyed Yahweh, and Yahweh delivered him. Now, sadly, these examples of ignorance and even twisting of Scripture is not limited to the world. We see much of this among those who even call themselves Christians. Did you know there's a theory in our seminaries that Moses did not write the book of Genesis? Many scholars today, biblical scholars, agree that the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy emerged from four different sources. Four different sources. According to these so-called experts, they each tell, these sources each tell the same basic story 
based on an oral tradition which was handed down through the generations. And they believe that, that an editor brought these writings together into one story, into one complete body of work. These scholars completely deny Moses' authorship. Thus they bring into question whether we can even trust the words that were written. The creation story... Well, according to them, that was just myth and tradition. We don't have to believe that tired old story because Moses really didn't write it. It's just a myth that was handed down through the generations. Well, we can now believe in science, right? This theory also brings into question the rest of Scripture and even the words of Jesus. Remember last week what, I, what we said? Jesus affirmed, or he affirmed, authorship of the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, to Moses. Well, if Moses didn't write it, then Jesus was wrong. And if Jesus was wrong, how can we trust Christ's words? You see where this goes, right? These attacks undermine the church's confidence. It undermines your confidence if you allow it. It undermines your confidence in the words of Scripture. But if we understand that every word of Scripture is God-breathed, then we will see that we can truly have confidence in each word. But what does it mean that the Scripture is God-breathed? What are the implications of a God-breathed Scripture? These are two questions that I hope that we can answer today. Now, last week I argued that we can prove that we prove the, the canon of Scripture by looking at the Scriptures themselves. In the sermon last week, we began looking at the following proposition statement. Here at Grace Bible Church, we maintain that God, the Holy Spirit, inspired the writing of the Old and New Testaments, including the formation of the canon. Now really, there's three main ideas that I want you to retain from last week that I really want you to get. The first one is, is that we believe and assert that the Holy Spirit administered the formation of the canon of Scripture. In other words, we believe that it was God who determined His canon. It was, we believe it's God who determined which books are part of the Bible. He is the author. He is the ultimate author. So He's the one who knows what was written by Him. <clears throat> Since the Bible was breathed out by God, written ultimately by God, it bears its own mark of authority its own mark of dependability, and its own mark of authenticity. And I know that as Christians, when you read it, that His Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are reading the words of God. So we must recognize that the canon bears His fingerprints. And we're merely detectives looking for the clues of God-breathed Scripture. Second thing I want you to remember is that we believe and assert that Jesus himself affirmed the Old Testament canon. This truth should be revolutionary in your thinking. The Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, whom John called the Logos, the, the Word, affirmed the words of the 39 books that we call the Old Testament. In Luke 24, 44, and 45, Jesus affirmed the threefold division of the Old Testament, the law the prophets, and the writings. In Matthew 24, 34-36, He affirmed the entirety of the Jewish canon from Genesis to Chronicles. 
And what we saw last week is that this fully matches the content of the Old Testament that you find in your Bible right now. Again, this affirmation, I hope, my prayer would be that it would give you great confidence. Our Lord Jesus used the same Old Testament scriptures that we use. Third, third thing I want you to remember from last week, that Jesus authorized the New Testament canon. In John 14, 26, Jesus promised to send the Holy Spirit to the disciples who, who would bring to them remembrance of all that He said. In John 16, excuse me, in John 16, 12, He pledged the Spirit of truth who would give, uh, bring to the, the apostles or give the apostles all truth. So we believe that it was the apostles whom Christ then authorized to pen the words of the New Testament. Now, Ephesians 2.19, we've been studying Ephesians as a church for the past several months. Uh, the Ephesians 2.19, the Apostle Paul asserts that the church has been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Now, Paul teaches that the church has been built upon the foundation which has been laid by the apostles. Now, these apostles, these men were Christ's authorized builders, with Christ Himself being the cornerstone, the chief cornerstone, we'll say. In Ephesians 4.11, the Apostle says that Christ gave some as apostles who were given to the church to equip the saints. Now, I would argue that they were given the gift of apostleship by the Holy Spirit to pen the words of God in the New Testament. <coughs> Excuse me. Now, I started this series by establishing the canon of Scripture. You might say that we confirmed the boundaries of Scripture. We did this by using the words of Scripture itself. Now, many, maybe some of you, would call this circular logic. Circular. I started with the canon of Scripture because I actually hoped that you would ask that question. How can we use, how can we justify using the truth of Scripture to prove the truth of Scripture. That, that would be the definition of a circular argument or circular logic. As Christians, though, we need to think critically. We need to force ourselves to ask tough questions, having faith that God will give us the answers. I'm not saying ask questions just for the sake of being critical, but I'm saying ask questions so that we can critically think through the answers. See, this is not circular logic, beloved, because we believe that God is the source of all truth and knowledge. Said another way, it is God Himself who has established truth. It is God Himself that has established knowledge. And, and I would argue that there is nothing knowable without God making it knowable. Do you understand that? There's nothing knowable without God making it knowable. Therefore, if He is the source of knowledge, then it can't be circular logic because He is the beginning and the end of all these things. He has established then His Word, the Word of God, as His means to communicate truth to us. Now, we can see the truth that God exists through creation, but ultimately, special revelation, the Word of God is how we know who God is. Jesus says in John 17, 17, 
Sanctify them in truth, in the truth, thy word is truth. Thy word is truth. So how do we know that it is God's word? We know because it is God-breathed. And how do we know that it is God-breathed? We know because it bears the marks and authority of God himself. Now, that brings us back to the question. What does it mean? Now, I believe our text today will help us answer this question. Uh, you may already be at 2 Peter 1.16, but if you're not, I want you to turn there. And as you do so, I want to remind you that we're not, again, we're not trying to convince the skeptic with our superior argumentation. I believe that we made an argument that this is not circular logic because it's, because it's bound or it's, it's, it finds its source in God who is the source of all truth. But I fully realize that there would be some people that would sit here and say, that's circular logic. Okay. That's what they say. I'm not trying to convince them. I'm trying to give you, as believers, confidence in the Word of God. And I believe that God provides the answers we need to face a chaotic world bent on twisting His words. And I think that we'll see that here in Second Peter chapter 1. So in this text, Peter gives three arguments why you as a believer must trust the Bible. He asserts that the apostles first were not making up fables. Look at your text. For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now I need to give you some background so that to help you understand this passage. In one one. Peter addresses his letter to those who had received a like faith as that of the apostles themselves. In 1.3, he tells his readers that God's divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through, get this, through true knowledge of Him who has called us by His own glory and excellence. Said another way, as Christians, you and I, we are not deficient in any way. God has given us all that we need to live godly lives and to understand and to know Him, at least to the point that He wants us to. Starting in verse 12, Peter writes this. He says, Therefore, I will always be ready to remind you of these things. Well, what things? Well, the truths, the truths of Scripture, the truths that they have been taught, even though you already know them and have been established in the truth which is present with you. I consider it right, as long as I'm in this earthly dwelling, to stir up by stir up, stir you up, that is, by way of reminder, knowing that the laying aside of my earthly dwelling is imminent, as also our Lord Jesus has made clear to me. And I will also be diligent that at any time after my departure you will be able to call these things to mind. Verse 15 is very important. He's concerned. In other words, Peter wants to continually remind them of the truths that they have been taught by the apostles. He knows that his time, his specific time, his life is short. Then that it is important for the readers that he's writing to to be able to recall these truths to mind after they depart. Who are they? The apostles, those who had seen these things. Well, what things? Well, the ministry of Christ on earth. And how will then, how will then they call these truths to mind? We'll turn over to chapter 3 where Peter tells us why he is writing these things. So chapter 3, 1 Peter 3, verse 1, 
he says this, This is now, beloved, the second letter I am writing to you, in which I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior by your apostles. Incredibly important. He's speaking to them that they would remember. What are they to remember? The words of the holy prophets and the, the, that is written where? In the Old Testament. And the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. Well, at that point, the New Testament hadn't been formed, but their words were going to be the formation of the New Testament. So we are, if we want to remember what they said and what was said by the Lord, where do we go? To the New Testament. That's what, that's what they were forming, or what was being formed at the time. Now, two questions, there are two questions that must be answered here. Why should we remember these things? Well, Peter has answered both. Look at verses 3 and 4. Chapter 3, verses 3 and 4. Know this, first of all, that in the last days mockers will come, with their mocking, following after their own lust. So Peter is saying there's going to be false teachers, mockers. They're going to come in and they're going to teach perverse things. <clears throat> to who? To the church. I think we see this. We see this today. More and more we see it, right? <coughs> he says this in, in, in verse 4. Where is the promise? And saying, where is the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. So what's going to happen is, is that there's going to be false teachers that will rise up from among the people who will question the promise of His coming. These mockers will say, in effect, He's not coming. Nothing has changed from the beginning of creation. Now, you might remember the introduction of this sermon. Tragically, many in the church deny creation, right? We looked at that. They deny. They deny mosaic authorship of Genesis. They've even accepted in the church the lie of evolution. And it's funny. Did you know that the theory of evolution at, at its heart lies the theory of uniformitarianism? Uniformity. I'll just say it that way. I, my mouth sometimes doesn't work very well. The theory of uniformity. You know what the theory of uniformity is? They believe that everything has continued just as we see it today from the beginning of time. That is at the basis of the theory of evolution, is that you look back over time and you have the same changes from millions of years ago. They deny the miraculous events. Right? What evolutionist is going to say there was a flood? What do they say? Well, there was ancient oceans. But they deny a flood where God judged sin. They deny the incarnation. They deny the resurrection. They deny the second coming of Christ. Now, the question then is, how are we to remember these things? The things that the, the apostles taught. How are we to remember these things? That's that second question. Well, the answer to that question lies in chapter 1, verses 16 through 21, and is the topic of the sermon today. So turn back to, to verse 16, where Peter again says, We did not follow cleverly devised 
tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I hope you see the connection. There are those who will deny that Christ will come again in His glory. Ultimately, they'll say He never came before, so He's not going to come again. But Peter says, no, we're not, making up t- we're not making up fables. We're not making up stories. When we made these things known to you, the, the Net Bible says that these are cleverly concocted fables. The King James Version calls them cunningly devised tales or fables. Again, they're made-up stories. Peter says, no, they're not. According to Peter and the apostles, he says these things truly happened. He was, a, he was a witness to Jesus' life and ministry. He was there when Jesus was arrested and tried. He was present when Jesus was in the grave. He even saw Jesus in His resurrected body. Amazingly, amazingly, He didn't use any of these as an example of the power and coming of our Lord Jesus. He used another. He used another example. So let's look at the second argument, his second argument for why you as a believer must trust the Bible. Look at your text. It says this, chapter 1, verse 16, But we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. For when, we re- when He received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to Him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved Son, and with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. Now what Peter is bringing up as his example is an incident that is recorded in Matthew 17. Now, turn your Bibles quickly to Matthew 16, as I give you just a little bit of background to this as we work our way to it. In Matthew 16... This is just after Jesus' promise to build His church in Matthew 16, 18. And in Matthew 16, 21, He revealed that He would suffer and be killed and be raised on the third day. Then He challenges His, his disciples in Matthew 16, 24. He, just, he challenges them to follow Him by taking up their own cross. Said another way, Jesus calls them to suffer and die for the cause of Christ. Now look at your text in 16, 27. In 1627, he says this, For the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of His Father with His angels and will then repay every man according to his deeds. What's Jesus saying? Jesus is saying, I am going to come again. He had already said in 1621 that He was going to suffer and die and be raised on the third day. Now in 1627, He's saying, I'm going to come again. I'm going to come again, and this time I'm going to come in my, in my glory, in the glory of the Father. It's prophecy of His second coming. Now, I hope you are able to see the parallel here to Peter's argument in 2 Peter. Peter. Jesus declared to His disciples that He would return in glory, that it would happen. Then in 1628, look at this, look what He says. Truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. What does that mean, Jesus? Does that mean you're coming within their lifetime? Obviously not. They're all dead. They're all gone. It would seem that that's what He was declaring, but that's not what He was saying. 
He's saying, look at chapter 17. Look at chapter 17 and see what happens, starting in verse 1. Six days later, so the, Matthew is tying these two events together. He says, six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and his brother and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun, and his garments became white as light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to him, to them, talking with him. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. And if you wish, I will make three tabernacles here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. And while he was still, still speaking, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And behold, a voice out of the cloud said, This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And when the disciples heard this, they, they fell face down to the ground and were terrified. And Jesus came and touched them and said, Get up and do not be afraid. And lifting their eyes, they saw no one except Jesus alone. As they were coming down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them, saying, Tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. You know what happened there? Jesus gave them a vision of coming attractions. Coming attractions. What was that? What's those coming attractions? Second coming. They saw what we are all going to see in the future. And in 2 Peter, Peter reminds his readers of this story. And he asserts it to be true. They were made eyewitnesses of His majesty. These men were given a preview of what was to come. Now, I would argue that Jesus gave them a glimpse of, glimpse of His glory so that they would not despair as they suffered for the rest of their lives for the cause of a crucified Messiah. God, or Christ called each of them to take up their cross. Remember that Matthew 16, 24? Take up your cross and follow me? Well, guess what? They're going to suffer and die. They're going to suffer and die. They're going to suffer a humiliating life and death because of Christ. He called each of them to take up their cross and follow Him by preaching the good news of His first coming in humiliation and the imminence of His second coming in glory. As such, he called each of them to suffer greatly and die, and even die for the cause of Christ. These men were given a glimpse of the majesty of Christ, and they heard the words of the Father saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And amazingly, the Father told them to do what? In Matthew 17, he says, Listen to him. Listen to him. What is he telling them? He's telling them that he was going to suffer and die at the hands of the chief priests and scribes. He was going to die in Jerusalem on the cross. And that they would also suffer and die for the cause of Christ. Think about that. Picking up in 17.10, Matthew 17.10, and his disciples asked him, why then, do, why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And he answered and said, Elijah is coming and will restore all things. But I also say to you that Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they wished. 
so also the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that they had spoken to them about that he had spoken to them about John the Baptist. Again, we see that tie to suffering, right? That tie to suffering, which is a crucial aspect of the gospel. If these were tying back to to Second Peter chapter one, if these were cleverly devised fables, the Messiah and the disciples would not suffer. You have to see that connection, that the suffering shows that these were not cleverly devised fables because no one would suffer for a lie. And this encounter on the mountain carried them through the rest of their lives as they went about preaching the gospel to a lost and dying world, as they suffered the consequences of the message. Now this brings us to the final and I would argue, main argument of Peter. He asserts that the apostles were moved by the Spirit when they spoke from God. Look at your text. Look at your text in verse 19, turning back to 2 Peter 1, verse 19. He says this, We have, so we have, the prophetic word made more sure. Now, The Net Bible, the New English Translation, translates this verse. Moreover, we possess the prophetic word as an altogether reliable thing. The we here is the apostles and Peter's audience. Ultimately, we can be included in the we because we have been given this prophetic word. Now, I would argue that the construction in the Greek should be read as the prophetic word is more certain or altogether certain, and it is something that we all have. We all possess it. The meaning is is that the Bible, in their case, the Old Testament, that these believers had in their hands was a thoroughly reliable guide. I take Peter's point to be that the Scriptures are more certain than his own eyewitness testimony. We must recognize that his... We must recognize, though, that his eyewitness testimony is included in the Scripture. Now, I would argue that he's making the case that they did in fact witness the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Christ. They also He also witnessed Jesus' glory on that mountain. Yet, we have something even more reliable than his account, the prophetic word of God. Now, I would also argue that the apostles and prophets, going back to Ephesians 2.19 and 4.11, were speaking forth from God and that the fruit of their ministry would result in the New Testament which Christ authorized. This fits, then, with Peter's emphasis on the reader's ability, his reader of his letter, the reader's ability to recall these things after his departure. Ultimately, ultimately, the New Testament was authorized by Jesus, inspired by the Holy Spirit, and penned by the apostles and their close associates. associates. That New Testament is the surviving authoritative record of the events surrounding the life of Christ 
and the birth of the church. Therefore, therefore, those who read and study the Old Testament and the New Testament have a more reliable record than the eyewitness testimony. Going back to what Peter wanted them to do is to remember. How were they going to remember? How were they going to recall? The eyewitnesses were going to fade off of the scene. But Peter is looking forward to what's going to happen with the New Testament, which would be formed, which would form the authoritative record of what happens. You see, eyewitness testimony fades over time, right? Something that you saw 25 years ago. If, you, if, if I asked you details, I guarantee you, you wouldn't get the exact details of what happened. You would have something in your mind that happened, but if you went back and compared it, you'd go, oh, well, that was different. That looks different than what I thought. That's not what I remember. You know how we do that, right? Well, that's the same thing with any eyewitness. And witnesses die, right? Amazingly, what Peter is arguing is that Scripture, the Scripture which we possess, is ultimately more reliable than that eyewitness testimony. How can he argue this? The answer is that Scripture is God-breathed. That's the answer. Peter goes on to say, look at your text, text, to which we would do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. I believe this is a reference to Psalm 119.105 where he says, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Again, he's pointing to Scripture. Peter's point is to say that this, in this dark world filled with false teaching, we must pay attention to the Scriptures as light to guide us. And this makes sense, right? Considering Peter's concern that his readers continue to be reminded of the truths of the Gospel even after the apostles leave the scene. And he says this is going to happen until, look at your text, until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your heart. The MacArthur Study Bible explains this verse. The perfect but limited... The perfect but limited revelation of the Scriptures will be replaced with the perfect and complete revelation of Jesus Christ at the second coming. Then the Scriptures will have been fulfilled and believers made like Christ. They will be given perfect knowledge and all prophecy will be abolished. That's Peter's point in that, in that phrase that that this is going to happen until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart, until Christ comes again, is his point. This brings us to the meat of Peter's argument. Look at verse 20. Peter says this, But know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. Now, this is a bit of a tough verse to interpret, but I think we can get it here. The connection with verse 21, I think, will help us interpret Peter's point. Now, the New English translation says this. I think it gives us good insight into this verse. It says this, Above all, you do well if you recognize this. No prophecy of Scripture ever comes about by the prophet's own imagination. Now, what the New English translation uh, translators are doing 
is they're translating the Greek word for interpretation or imagination as being a genitive of source. And I don't want to bog you down in the details. But I want you to understand, this simply means that prophecy is not sourced or does not come from the imagination of the prophet. doesn't come from the imagination of the prophet. This fits perfectly with verse 16 where Peter says that they did not follow cleverly devised trails or tales and that prophecy of Scripture does not spring from one's own imagination. It's not, it's not sourced from one's own imagination. And I believe this makes the most sense with verse 21. You see, the prophets did not invent their own prophecies. They didn't invent it. Verse 20. Their impulse came for prophecy, or their impulse for prophesying came from God. That's Peter's main emphasis. Look at verse 21. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. What Peter is saying is the, the prophets nor the apostles speak of their own initiative, based on their own will. They were moved or carried along by the Holy Spirit as they spoke from God. Luke uses the same verb for carried along to describe how the winds blow a sailing ship across the waters. For Peter, this is actually a John MacArthur quote, for Peter, it was as if the writers of Scripture raised their spiritual sails and allowed the Spirit to fill them with His powerful breath of revelation as they penned its divine words. End quote. Now, I hope that you can see this fits perfectly with the idea of the Spirit. Especially Paul's words in 2 Timothy 3.16. Paul says, All Scripture is inspired by God. That word inspired is theonoustos, which means breathed out. God breathed. The breath of God. That, that, that God breathed out, literally breathed out the words of Scripture. In the words of R.C. Sproul, this Greek word means literally God breathed and, is the primary, is, and has primary reference to God's breathing out His word rather than breathing in some kind of effect upon the human writers. He, he's breathing out His Word. Sproul goes on to say, So expiration, expiration is a more accurate term than inspiration with respect to the origin of Scripture. But we use the term inspiration to cover the concept of the whole process by which the Word comes to us. And we've talked about that through the t- discussion of the canon. As such, the the Christian's faith and and hope are never based upon cleverly concocted fables, but on the sure Word of God, which we believe are the very words of God. Ones which the prophets, prompted by the Spirit of God, spoke. Peter's point is the same as found elsewhere in the New Testament, that human prophets did not originate the message but they did convey the message from God using their own personalities in the process. Again, in the words of R.C. Sproul, he says this, the process of 
the process of inspiration did not make the biblical writers automatons. For their books reveal differences in vocabulary, style, and other matters of variation between one author and another. But inspiration did overcome any tendency they may have had to error, with the result that the words they wrote were precisely what God, the divine author, intended us to have. With the aid of divine inspiration and the superintendence of the Holy Spirit in giving sacred scripture, the writings of the Bible are free from the normal tendencies and propensities of fallen men to distort the truth. You see how important it is to understand that. What, what he is saying is, we said earlier that they didn't follow cleverly devised tales, and when they gave their eyewitness testimony, but yet we know that memories fail, we know that memories can change, yet we have the words of Scripture where men were carried along by the Holy Spirit and the writing of those words so they are exactly what need to be written so that we would know exactly what we need to know from God. Now I hope, and we've established that all Scripture, the 39 books of the Old Testament and the 27 books of the New Testament, have in fact been inspired by God and are profitable for teaching, for reproof, and for training in righteousness. Now over these next few weeks, I hope my desire, my plan, is that we can build upon what we've learned and established to be the truth. Now at this point, I want to take a few minutes, I know it's getting close, but I want to take a few minutes to to establish clearly what we believe concerning the inspiration of Scripture. Let me define inspiration so that we have a good working knowledge of what it means. It's the process by which God worked through the human authors of the Bible to communicate His revelation. The term derives from the Greek word theopneustos, meaning God-breathed, and refers to God as the ultimate source of the Scriptures. Now, I want to also tell you that we believe in verbal, plenary inspiration. And that, that means that it's the extending of God's superintendence of the writing of Scripture down to the very choice of words, not merely the themes, the overarching themes, not merely the concepts. That is, according to what we call the Chicago Statement, you can look it up, it's on biblical inerrancies. It says the whole scripture and all its, of its parts down to the very words of the original were inspired. Now, that, just to get a little bit of a note, I haven't said this. You hold, in your hand, you hold translation, of translation of the Bible. The, the original words of the Bible written in Greek for the New Testament, Hebrew and, and some Aramaic, is, is when we're referring to, and we'll talk about this more in the coming weeks, when we're referring to the inerrancy of the Bible, we're talking about the original text that the author wrote. There's some, some question, not questions, there are some discussions around the transmission of that text and how we receive that text, but we're talking about what the author actually wrote. Let me end, let me end this with this quote, from, again, from R.C. Sproul. He says it so well, so I'm just going to let him end the sermon. I think it'll set the stage for the, net, for the rest of this series. He says this, 
the Holy Spirit so superintended the writers of the Bible that the words they produced are the words of each particular author, and at the same time, the exact words of God Himself, with all the authority His speech carries. This is why Jesus can say, Scripture cannot be broken, John 10.35, and why Paul can exhort Timothy to continue in the Word of God that he has heard and to use it to correct and edify other believers, according to 2 Timothy 4, 1 and 2. This is why Scripture is the final authority for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. It is why Scripture is necessary to make us competent for every good work, according to 3, 16 and 17. Now, he goes on to say, Paul's statement is applicable not only to the Old Testament, even though some argue that the Apostle only has the Old Covenant writings in mind here. Now he's talking about 2 Timothy 3.16. All Scripture is inspired by God. Yet since the Apostle never speaks about the Old Testament apart from the revelation of Jesus Christ, Paul's conception of Scripture includes the Gospel, which is proclaimed clearly in New Covenant writings. Therefore, the Old and New Testaments together are the very breath of God and the only infallible and inerrant rule for faith and practice. End quote. Beloved, I hope these last two Sundays that as believers, again, I'm not trying to convince the skeptic, but as believers that you believe that you hold the Word of God in your hand. It's translation of the Word of God, yes, in our own language, but that you hold what represents the Word of God, the Old Testament and the New Testament, and is what Jesus affirmed and what Jesus authorized. And you can have confidence in it. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning again that we could gather and Father, I know that in many ways this was, a, again, a heavy lifting sermon, time of learning. I pray that you would use it to your glory. Father, I pray for this congregation, for these people, for your dear saints, that they would have confidence in the Word of God, that it is your Word, your very words, you intended for us to have. In Christ's name, amen.